Friends, we are indeed in Acts chapter 3. Let's open there in our Bibles. I was going to preach this entire chapter, but I was so struck by the first 10 verses that we're going to stick there this morning together. So I'm in Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask of alms those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping, he stood up and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who had sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is a miracle. You are the God of miracles. You are the God who moves in the power of Jesus' name. As you did that in Peter and John's day, I pray that you would do that today in our midst and in our body as we seek to minister in your name. Would you do that in Jesus' precious risen and reigning name? Amen. Well, friends, Peter and John, they take a trip to the temple. And we had heard just in the last paragraph at the end of chapter two that this was the daily practice of the church, that they were gathering together in the temple, that they would do this daily. Now, we remember in Peter and John's day, of course, that there were no church buildings. So this space here is not the church. The building is not the church. It's the people of God. And the way that the church gathered in Peter and John's day would have been either at the temple in Jerusalem or around each other's dinner tables. That's where they would have gathered. Remember also that Peter and John would have had no problem with this because they never thought of their faith in Jesus the Messiah as being anything different than what they had grown up with. They weren't leaving Judaism to start a new religion or to think about the kingdom in a different way. They saw Jesus as the truest fulfillment of their faith, and so they were delighted together to meet in the temple. So that's where we find uh, Peter and John on their way to the temple. Now, verse one tells us that it was at the, the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So we know that in these days, uh, Jews had a regular practice of prayer. They would meet together at sunset, su- uh, sunrise, and then at 3 p.m., and then at sunset, and together they would offer prayers to God. That's probably what we hear about in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when it says that the church devoted themselves to the prayers, The church together was probably just continuing on this regular habit of prayer. They devoted themselves to the prayers. Now, if you're already realizing in this first month that we can hardly go a sermon in Acts without mentioning prayer, that prayer is everywhere, and you're wondering about your own prayer life, this is a great encouragement for us for a practice of prayer. 
What if, if we don't have a plan, we adopted this plan? And that is when I get up or sometime in the middle of the day and before I go to bed, if I just set aside a few minutes for prayer, three or four minutes, I just use that time to commune with God in prayer, that would be a beautiful thing to do and it would drastically change the way we pray if we don't have a prayer life. Now, I know that some people hear something like that and think, well, let's not get legalistic about it, right? Let's not start setting our alarms and doing something like that. But I think we confuse getting legalistic about something as getting serious about something. I hear people use legalism and seriousness interchangeably, and those don't belong together. If we're getting legalistic about prayer, that means that we are using, adopting this three-a-day prayer plan so that God will see it and be impressed with it and love us all the more and he'll accept us into his kingdom and we can rub it in other people's faces. That's legalism. That's the self-righteousness that is ours that we celebrate. That's not what we want to do here. If we're talking about getting serious about prayer, it's just realizing, hey, I fancy myself as someone who prays without ceasing, but I realize that I don't do that. And unless I have a habit in place, I won't continue to do that. So let me put this thing in place and get serious about my prayer life. That's a beautiful thing. Please do that. It's kind of like the husband who says, I don't need to date my wife because every day in my house is a date with my bride. Yeah, right. You're already laughing. That's cute. That's called a honeymoon. Uh, When that wears off, habits are really, really important. They're a beautiful thing to remember to pursue each other and to pursue the Lord. So, That's my plug for a thoughtful prayer life. In Acts, prayer is the great instigator. God moves through prayer. Prayer messes with things. Jesus chooses to show up in prayer and to surprise us, and you never know. You may set about for a regular prayer time and end up converting a friend and preaching to the masses and getting arrested. You have no idea. Well, funny enough, Peter and John go to have a prayer time, and they end up converting a friend and preaching to the masses and get arrested. God moves through prayer to change things. So I want to say about a word about this man that they encounter, and I want to learn a little bit about him. Let's look in uh, verse 2 to see this. It says, And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gates, to ask for alms of those who were entering the temple. Now, we never get the man's name, but we learn just a little bit about him. One of the things we learn is that at the end of chapter 4, it mentions that he is over 40 years of age. So he's elderly. I just turned 39 a couple of weeks ago, and I'm approaching that age and stage of life where I just woke up sore on my birthday. It was just like, man, 39, this is tough. So I'm up there with him. I think it's so easy to skim over verse two and not absorb the weight of what this man has experienced that I just wanna dwell here for a moment. You've got a man who has never once in his entire life, over 40 years, had the freedom to stand up, walk out the door, and go wherever he wanted to go. His entire life, he's been utterly dependent on other people. And this is a day and age in which there weren't facilities and things. He didn't have a wheelchair, no ramps, no access in these days. His world was very, very small. 
And in fact, we get to hear what his daily routine is, and that is somebody, his family or friends, would literally pick him up and carry him to the temple in Jerusalem and lay him outside the gate, which is where he could be posted up so that as people were coming to this 3 p.m. hour of prayer, they would see him there and they would help by giving some kind of charity to him. Now, in this day and age, back then, in the time of this writing, this was a very, very poor community, and many, most of the population would have lived hand to mouth, and so this man would have known that he was dependent on his parents, he couldn't provide for them, and so he was dependent on the charity of people, the whims of those going to prayer for his daily bread. It was a desperate place to live. I don't know if you guys have seen this kind of poverty, If you've been in the majority world, you may have seen it. My wife and I lived in South Asia, and you realize very quickly that America's wealth is able to solve many of its poverty problems, and it's able to hide the poverty problems that it can't solve, but many other places in the world wear desperate poverty like an open sore. It's just part of the backdrop of anywhere you go, and that was this man's world. He was part of that backdrop outside of the temple. So he's there and he's poor and he's dependent. But there's actually another dynamic that's hard to understand that you need to know as you think about the scene. And that is they carry him up to the gate of the temple, but never ever inside of the temple. The man would have always been outside the temple, but never inside the temple. And this is a complicated point to understand that we will get when we preach through the book of Leviticus. But I'll say very simply now that according to Leviticus, one must be ritually whole and clean and holy to approach God in his temple. That this was a demonstration by demanding that a worshiper must be whole and clean and holy without ailment and to only bring offerings that were without blemish would have communicated to worshipers that God himself was holy other, otherworldly, holy, and that you could not just march into his presence as you were, but you needed to prepare yourself for that kind of worship. So, of course, this man was never outside the the love of God for him. God loved him and cared for him, but he spent his entire life outside of the ritual presence of God in the temple. Always outside the temple, always at the gate, never ever inside the temple itself. So you try to imagine the, the darkness of this man's life. I mean, you try to think and imagine what this must have felt like He's a grown man. He's unable to support himself or his parents. He's probably never going to have a family of his own. He may be experiencing some kind of chronic pain and surely he felt like a charity case. I wonder if he felt unseen by the world. I wonder if as he watched people pass him by and maybe drop a coin in his cup that he felt unseen by the world. And I wonder also if he felt unseen by God always outside the temple and never inside the temple. And you have to wonder if he ever thought to himself, would it just be better for everybody if I wasn't here? Have you ever thought that? Or are you thinking that now? 
There is a, a kind of grief and a kind of darkness that hits us. Maybe some of us in the room this morning, maybe some who are near to us, maybe us ourselves, these low places of suffering or of sin or of circumstances or abuse or self-loathing or just anxiety and depression that gnaws away at us, that haunts us and is a horror to us. And surely the worst thing a person can experience is feeling unseen by God and unseen by other people. That's a nightmare. But then wouldn't you know, up walks Jesus. Or more specifically, up walk two men in Jesus' name, which according to the book of Acts is the same thing. That's how Jesus chooses to intervene in people's life. He sends out people in his name to bump into the world and to reveal himself to them. And Jesus is here. What happens in verse four, what Peter and John do next, it is absolutely learned behavior. It's not stuff that they would have done or could have done had they not spent three years in the school of Jesus. It doesn't look like much, but it is truly tremendous. Verse four, and Peter directed his gaze at him as did John. They saw him. They saw this invisible man. He no longer blended into the backdrop of the beggars at the temple. He stood out as a man created in God's image worth being seen. And Peter and John, filled with the Spirit, can no longer ignore him. They see him and they notice him. And that's a miracle. I mean, we could spend a whole Sunday school class on all the ways that humanity is made in the image of God and they are valuable and they are worth being seen and every single person is worth connecting with. But unless we truly walk with Jesus, and true, unless he truly fills us and redeems us and changes us, that information will never make it from our brains to our eyes. We will simply not notice the least of these. That is part and parcel of Jesus' kingdom. That's what he came to do. And Jesus, he did this all the time. He does this everywhere in his ministry. In John chapter nine, he's got his crowd marching along his retinue and he is the very first person to notice the man born blinds that nobody else cared to see. In Mark chapter 10, there's this massive crowd around Jesus and at the outskirts of the crowd is blind Bartimaeus and he's calling out for someone to hear him and the people at the outskirts are saying, Bartimaeus, shut up. He's in the middle of a crowd and he's busy and Jesus stops with all the noise and says, someone's calling for me, bring him to me. In Luke chapter 18, parents are trying to bring little kids and infants and once again the disciples are on the perimeter running defense and Jesus says stop bring them to me Matthew chapter 9 a crowd is pressing in on Jesus touching him at every point and Jesus pauses in the middle of that and says someone has touched me it's the woman with the blood issue for 12 years who has found healing in him Jesus again and again notice the least of these every gospel writer testifies to the fact that God in the flesh, he stopped, he heard, he spoke to the people that nobody else noticed. 
That's learned behavior that comes in the school of Jesus. And so Peter and John's eyes are really no longer Peter and John's eyes. They are Jesus' eyes on loan to Peter and John to begin to see with the lens of the kingdom of God that what other people would not notice, they notice. What other people can't see, they see. They now see the unseen. And that's when the fireworks begin. Verse six, Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And at the name of Jesus, Everything about this day, about this man, about this community is turned upside down and changed forever. I'm going to risk saying something that is painfully obvious to us, okay? But of utmost importance, so get your pens ready. There is power in the name of Jesus because there is power in Jesus, right? That's where the power comes from. This is not a magical formula. There's power in the name of Jesus because there is power in the person of Jesus. That's why the name of Jesus or the name of the Lord, that phrase is used 31 times in the book of Acts because people are desperate to use it, to get a hold of it, to claim its authority. And the name of Jesus is used in two ways in the book, either for salvation or for his authority to do something. So everyone who calls on the name of the Lord might be saved. That's calling on the name of Jesus for salvation. Or in our case, in the name of Jesus, do this. That's calling on Jesus' authority to do something. It's not a special formula. It appeals to the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father today, resurrected in glory with all power, ready to respond to his saints who cry out in his name. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. In the name of Jesus, let there be light in this dark depression. In the name of Jesus, break the stranglehold of addiction. In the name of Jesus, heal this relationship. In the name of Jesus, forgive sins and let them be remembered no more. There is power in Jesus's name, which is why we as believers are invited to pray in Jesus's name. I think sometimes we close our prayers with in Jesus's name, amen, because we think that's how you wind up a conversation with God. Like that's how I hang up the phone. And so I pray for my daily bread and then I mumble in Jesus's name, the end, amen. In Jesus name over and out, I'm gone, see you. Not realizing that there is power in that statement because there is power in Jesus and I am appealing to the one who has direct access to the Father to do something, move something, forgive something, bind something in the name of Jesus. So don't go praying that name willy-nilly and pointing it in different directions. You might end up healing somebody or converting somebody. Be careful what you do with Jesus' name in your prayers. Verse 7, a miracle happens. 
Peter pronounces healing in Jesus' name. The healing takes place. It says everything is put back together. The man who has never walked, never spent a day in rehab, he's able to get up and start walking. But I think the true miracle is in verse 8. That's where the action is. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And I wonder where the first place in the world this guy wants to go. Don't you wonder? You can finally walk. Where do you want to go? And entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. This man has spent his entire life outside the temple. I mean, for 40 years, he wondered what it looked like inside the temple. And every day for 40 years, he watched his friends and family and neighbors walked past him into the temple, and he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he would die outside the temple, and now the man is in the temple. And he's in it in dramatic fashion. He's running, he's leaping, he's laughing, he's shouting, he's bumping into old ladies, he's kissing priests on the lips. He is thrilled to be there. I mean, he looks like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life, right? Hello, you old building and loan, I love you. He's just doing cartwheels in the temple. And there's gotta be people there that are saying, dude, what is this guy's problem? It's just afternoon prayer. I mean, we're here every day at 3 p.m. And when the man hears that, he says, you're right, it's afternoon prayer. We're here every day at 3 p.m. I love afternoon prayer, I'll be here. I mean, it's an absolute miracle. Because this man is simultaneously able to do physically and spiritually what he has never done in this way before. He's able to walk into the brick and mortar temple of God on earth, even as he draws near with confidence to the throne of grace, into God's presence. And nothing, I mean nothing, can hold back the floodgates of a soul seen by God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, give us a fraction of this man's joy. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation that we might enter your presence with thanksgiving and with praise, knowing that you are good and gracious and that there is power in your name. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.